Now we're reading in the Gospel according to John chapter 4, and if you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, it is memorably on page 1066. 1066. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read just the first few verses. This is a long uh, chapter with a very long conversation in it, but I just want to read the first few verses. If you don't have a Bible, now would be a good time to go to the back and pick up one of the church Bibles so you can follow along. Uh, I know a number of us have been on holiday, and in these uh, mornings we are engaged in a study in John's Gospel. We're not doing the whole of John's Gospel, but we are following through a uh, a series of punctuation marks that are in John's gospel. John, in distinction from the first three gospels, seemed to have a fascination with time. And so the gospel is organized around Jesus' visits to the temple in Jerusalem for the great feasts. But it's also punctuated by all kinds of time markers so that unlike the other gospel writers, he often tells us at what time of the day uh, things took place. He begins with the description of a week in the life of Jesus. He more or less ends with a description of a week in the life of Jesus. Uh, he begins by telling us about Nicodemus, and right at the end of his life, Jesus' life, we will hear again about Nicodemus. So, uh, many time markers, interestingly. And here, uh, the time marker is, uh, I suppose, what Americans, but not Scots, would call lunchtime. Lunchtime is 12 o'clock in the United States. I think it's still 1 o'clock in the United Kingdom. We work so much harder before we have lunch. So, uh, today we're looking at a conversation at midday, a conversation at midday. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, because of course he was the Word made flesh, as we've seen on Sunday evenings, wearied from his journey, he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, that is to say, at twelve o'clock noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I wonder what it would be like if you went into Costa or Cafe Nero as a, a young woman who presumably at some time was a quite a looker, as they say, from what we will see later on in this conversation. There were five men who had lived with her in the past, and she with them, and now she was on the sixth. And uh, you go in at uh, noon for your coffee, and uh, you just want some time on your own, and the tables are all full, and there's one table, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it's a man who is sitting there, and you sit down beside him. And for the next half hour, you're stuck beside Jesus Christ. Interesting question to ask people, wouldn't it? I mean, there would be people who would immediately respond, oh, I'd absolutely love it. And maybe a little like this woman finding, I think, that she was beginning to hate it. And there are others who, because of their consciences, would be like this woman and wouldn't really like the conversation to start at all. And it rather seems to me, although it's often difficult to pick up nuances in conversations that you read, and this is actually the longest conversation recorded anywhere in the New Testament, I think, difficult to pick up the nuances, but I rather suspect that right from the get-go, she is pushing Jesus away. Uh, many of us are familiar with the story. Uh, it's the story of a woman who was hiding the truth and eventually came to discover as she, in fact, goes back to her fellow villagers and, and says to them, I have just met a man who told me everything about myself. So it's actually, you know, I can't speak on behalf of young women, but it's an interesting thing, isn't it? What young women, you imagine young women at college going back to their roommates or their flatmates and saying, I've just met this man, and he is just the most I've ever met. But only Jesus, only about Jesus would you be able to say, I've just met somebody who knew absolutely everything about me. And actually, when that happens, she's just discovering what John has already told us in his gospel. At the end of chapter 2, he's told us that Jesus knows what's in people. And in chapter 3, in his conversation with Nicodemus, it became very clear that he knew what was in Jesus. Jesus knew what was in him, 
And that was what he slowly discovered. So here is Jesus. They've been journeying, probably journeying a day and a half uh, in order to get to this point. John tells us without explanation that he had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria geographically or for any other reasons. Indeed, uh, many Orthodox Jews would have avoided Samaria in case this kind of thing happened to them, and they might meet a Samaritan woman. Perhaps it's just a little hint that John gives us when he says Jesus had to go through Samaria, that if we read on in the passage, we will discover what that necessity was and why that necessity seemed to have been laid on him providentially by God just for this situation. And as you read on to the end of the narrative for the the awakening, the spiritual awakening that took place in this uh, little town or I suppose it would be village size. And it's noontime, you can see Jesus, uh, the disciples who apparently didn't carry food with them all the time, um, they've gone into the village to buy food. And um, we learn later on in the, in the passage that uh, uh, although Jesus is sitting by the well, do you know what you would do if you were a traveler? and you needed to get water out of wells in the first century, you would carry a fold-up pail, probably made of leather, probably get it in the supermarket, and you would lower it down. (laughs) The woman says to Jesus in the conversation, did these guys I saw on the way go off with your portable pail? Because uh, he's sitting there, and he's thirsty. I mean, it's an amazing statement, isn't it? It's such, a, it's such a, a little confirmation, as I said, of what John says in the prologue to his gospel. Look out for this in my gospel, that the Word is made flesh, and Jesus is tired. Strong Jesus, who must have walked miles and miles, is tired under the heat of the noonday sun, walking for six hours no nourishment, uh, no water. And as he's sitting there at this well, Jacob's well, what do you think he would be thinking about? Does it actually ever cross your mind that Jesus would think about anything? That he had a human brain, that thoughts came into his mind. So here he is at Jacob's well, I don't know if if he was ever at Jacob's well before. What would you think about if you were Jesus at Jacob's well? You know, this is pure speculation, but I would guess you would think about Jacob, wouldn't you? And then perhaps what he was thinking about was how Jacob came to be. Remember how Jacob came to be? He came to be because of a meeting at a well. You remember how his... uh, grandfather had uh, sent his servant, Eliezer, go and find a wife for his son Isaac. And uh, as Eliezer had been looking for a wife, he'd, he'd gone to a well, and he was, he was praying that God would guide him. And uh, this uh, young lady, very attractive young lady, came to the well at evening time. And uh, 
he asked if he could have a drink of water. And uh, you remember she gave, she gave his camels water as well. And Jesus was thinking about that. I know when you're thinking about something, uh, especially, you know, if you're in the noonday sun and, and you see something on the horizon and you wonder if it's a floater, you know, you know, and, and then it comes nearer and, and nearer and nearer. And, and as, as it happens, Jesus realizes there's something wrong with this picture. You know, it's like the puzzles. What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with this picture is it's not evening. It's noonday. And here's somebody, obviously a woman, carrying a water container, and there's absolutely nobody with her. What, what's wrong with this picture? What does this picture tell you? It tells you there's something wrong in this woman's life. There's something, there's something not fitting. There's something dysfunctional. That this should be normal for this woman tells you that there is something in the story of this woman that is profoundly dysfunctional. You don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to see that. And so, as uh, you might say, as this woman comes near, the same question is in Jesus' mind as was in the mind of Abraham's servant Eliezer, the question he actually asked uh, the woman eventually. will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? It's very tempting, at least I find it tempting, you know, when you read this narrative. This woman is so interesting, isn't she? You know, this is the kind of woman who comes up on your, your, your website, isn't it? You know, this, you know, all these bits about personalities and what people are up to. But we mustn't allow our eyes to be diverted from Jesus because he's the main character. And it's important for us to, to see what's happening through what Jesus is doing. And I think it's fairly obvious that Jesus is, with extraordinary patience, leading this woman from stage to stage until he fully reveals who he is to her. So, the story actually begins, the conversation begins in which Jesus appears as no more than a thirsty stranger. Yes, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan, and, and they don't mix, and he's a man and she's a woman, and if the rabbis had been present, they would have been absolutely horrified at what was happening. Um, but what she sees is what Jesus actually is. He's a thirsty stranger, and he asks her for water. And as I say, it's, it's difficult to be absolutely certain about the nuances of, of what this woman says, uh, but her first words are, what is this, you, a Jew, and a man asking for a drink of water from me, a woman, and a and a Samaritan, and she could actually just be saying, who do you think you are? What are you trying on with me? It may be the very first of her efforts to push Jesus away, 
And yet, there's something about this conversation that makes it clear because she, she gets more and more drawn into it, and she becomes more and more animated that she senses there is, just, there is something about Jesus. And of course, this is how the Bible portrays Him. Remember how Isaiah portrays Him. There was nothing about Him that made people think He was extraordinary. There was no beauty in Him that we should desire Him. I mean, what a statement in the light of the fact that this, this woman is for men. And yet, it's the same Isaiah in almost the same context who says that he doesn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a dimly burning wick. And that's a, that's a whole person thing, isn't it? That's something you sense about people. That's something you, you almost smell about people. You don't, you don't need to speak long with people to have a sense of, of, of uh, what their heart really is and, and how, they, how they treat other people. But all she sees in Jesus is a thirsty stranger. And she, in some senses, was right. He was a very thirsty stranger. But the thing is, it wasn't just that he was thirsty for water. It was thirst to help this woman, to show this woman whom he clearly understood came from a life of deep unhappiness and dissatisfaction and even social dysfunction since she doesn't come out with the other women when they draw water and he's thirsty. Remember later on, the disciples say to him at the end of the story, you, you need some food, and Jesus says, okay, I've had plenty. I've had meat to eat of which you do not know anything yet. And we could also say it looks as though he had drink to drink that they didn't fully understand. So, she encounters Jesus as a thirsty stranger and, and partly seems to push Him down in order to dominate the conversation and partly continues in conversation because there's, there's just something about Jesus. Just actually like in a minor way, people often say to Christians, I can't, I can't work it out about you. I but there's something different about you. And to which the answer is, well, there's nothing extraordinary about me, but it's Jesus. So, it begins with a conversation with a thirsty stranger. Jesus is the thirsty stranger. But then Jesus begins to reveal Himself to this woman, and He speaks about Himself as the source of living water. And it's marvelous, isn't it? Look at, at verse 10. Jesus answered her. You see, he's actually, this is, this is like Jesus and Nicodemus again. He's, he's actually answering a question. She's not really asking. He's giving answers into her soul. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. Now, it's clear, I think, that, that, that uh, this woman has no sense whatsoever that she needs Jesus. Actually, from her point of view, 
you would think Jesus needs her or he's going to die here of thirst. So, no sense whatsoever that she is any need of Jesus. And, and this is what Jesus is beginning to probe and to probe in a way that she completely misunderstands. She has no idea what he's speaking about. Remember those famous words of Augustine that preachers are always quoting right at the beginning of the confessions? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Do you know what Augustine's problem was? It wasn't that he knew there was rest in the Lord and he couldn't find it. It was that he was restless and he didn't know where he could find rest. He was restless and he didn't know where he could find rest. And that's, that's exactly this woman's situation. Whether she has been abused by men or whether she is a, a serial whatever, she is restless but she doesn't know that she can find rest in Jesus. And so, he points her in the direction, but of course, she doesn't understand. And he uses this marvelous picture. I'm asking you for a drink of water, but if you knew who was sitting here, you would be asking him for a drink, and he would give you living water. And you see her response? Is her response just plain ignorance, or is it just a further, a kind of further domineering element? Uh, she says, well, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Look how deep the well is. You, you don't have your pail with you. you. How can you give me living water? Who do you think you are, she is saying to Jesus. The well is deep. Reminds me of the story of McChain and Bonner, Andrew Bonner, when they visited the Holy Land, and I think it was Andrew Bonner sat on this very well and leaned over, and I think it was his breast pocket New Testament fell out, and it went down to the bottom of the well, and somebody who was the well with him used exactly these words. <laughs> the well is deep. You know, you're not going to get that one back. The well is deep and you have nothing with which to draw water. Now, it's interesting that it's not yet time in this woman's life, nor actually is it time in John's gospel, for John to explain to us or Jesus to explain to this woman what he means by living water. But later on, John picks it up. Jesus says, if you come and drink of me, you will never thirst again. And Jesus also says that uh, he, will, he will give the Spirit to His people, and that uh, the one who believes in Him will experience rivers of living water flowing out of Jesus towards him or her. And what he's talking about here is the, the blessings that the Holy Spirit gives. John actually says he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. And after Pentecost, the disciples would understand that it was through the Holy Spirit that all the blessings of salvation, of forgiveness, pardon, transformation, new birth, new life, help, wisdom, guidance, it would all come from Jesus 
through the Holy Spirit as, as the Spirit joined us in faith to Jesus. The rivers would flow, the rivers of grace would flow toward us. But she doesn't understand this. And so the conversation moves on to another stage. Jesus as the thirsty stranger, Jesus as the source of living water, and Jesus now, I think, recognizing that she is, she's actually beginning to put him down. She's resisting the teaching of this thirsty stranger. And so, the third stage in the revelation is that Jesus now takes on the role of the exposer. So, He's the thirsty stranger. He's the source of living water. And in verses 16 to 18, He becomes the exposer. Look at our response in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I've no husband. I wonder if you've noticed, I think this is the last few years, if someone is interviewed and there is a hostile question, I wonder if you've noticed what the first word out of the mouth of the person who has gone onto the back foot is. You know, kind of vocabulary just becomes commonplace. Notice the number of times if a, if a, a hostile question is asked, the first word will be look. Notice that look. You'll notice it now. It's, it's quite frequent. Look. Don't know where it came from. Don't know where it's going to. It will fall out of use, but it's become the standard. It's like moving forwards, you know. It's part of the gobbledygook. But you see, it's a step back in order that you may push forward. And that's exactly what's happening here with this woman. Jesus says, go and call your husband. And you see what he's become now. I think, and this is because this is on our minds, maybe this is a good illustration. Up to this point, Jesus has been a soul surgeon on this woman's life, asking the question, can I save her by keyhole surgery without making a massive incision? Can I do this in the gentlest way possible, draw her to myself? But as her spiritual condition begins to manifest itself, it's almost as though at this point when Jesus is pushed back by this woman, He decides that He needs to make a large incision. Go and call your husband. That's not a conversation starter. That's a command, isn't it? In a way, it's an outrageous command. It's an invasive command. What would you who are wives say to any man who said, go and call your husband? You would handbag him, wouldn't you? or run from him. He wouldn't be safe. He'd discover who you really were. So, Jesus is being very invasive. You see, he's, he's saying, there is no point in you resisting me in this way. I know all about you. Go call your no husband. And then the scalpel goes right in. He said, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five of them. And the man with whom you're now living is not your husband. I don't know whether this is true or not, because John has these kind of fascinating interests in numbers and things, but uh, she's now had six men. 
But she needs the seventh man, doesn't she? The perfect man. And she's so resistant, and Jesus puts the pressure on. He, he, one might say he prefers to do keyhole surgery. I remember reading in a sermon by Charles Spurgeon years and years ago how he said he'd listened to thousands of interviews and testimonies with people who had become members of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London where he was the minister in the 19th century. And he said, you know, I remember one of the very best of those women describing how she became a Christian. She said, I saw what Jesus was like and I knew I wasn't like Jesus. No kind of uh, John Bunyan-like experience of months of conviction of sin, no Martin Luther-like agonies, but very simple keyhole surgery. I saw I wasn't like Jesus, and Jesus drew her to Himself. But here He needs to make a larger incision because the resistance is so strong. And everything about this woman, it's like, uh, it's like listening to the stones in the 1960s are still going in the 2000s. I can't get no satisfaction. And I've tried, 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 and I'm trying again. And he has to do this because the woman persists in looking in the wrong direction for the satisfaction for which her soul longs, but nobody can supply. And not only can nobody supply it to her, but nobody can bring her back from the consequences of it. And what's amazing about this passage is when the conversation ends, the, the, the most obvious consequence of her need, of her shame, and of her restlessness virtually disappears, and she, she goes back to the village, and she speaks to everybody about Jesus. It's an amazing illustration of how Jesus not only transforms the heart, but transforms the whole life. But here Jesus comes as the exposer. I think it's, do you know, where did we get this story from, incidentally? Well, there are only three possibilities, are there? Really? Either John made it up. Second, it must have come from the Samaritan woman. Thirdly, it must have come from Jesus himself, and probably the last. So he knew what he was doing. And that brings him to the fourth stage in this revelation. Thirsty stranger, source of living water, exposer of sin. And now you notice in 19 to 26, he reveals his identity as the Messiah. So they get into this conversation, and Jesus eventually tells her who she is. But it doesn't happen without a struggle. You notice this is, there's something chess-like in what happens here. Every time Jesus says something, she musters a defense. And as Jesus gets nearer to this revelation of who He is, having revealed that He knows everything about her, her restless need, the failures of her relationships, the sin of her life, um, she uses her strongest defense. I don't know what the strongest chess defense is. I know about the Sicilian defense and the French defense. 
and she uses her strongest defense. Now, notice what the first is. This is not 21st century. This is first century. First defense. It's the many religions defense, isn't it? You Samaritans, you Jews, you know, disagreement among religious people. You can, you can, it's almost as though she's saying nobody can be sure. The Samaritans say this, the Jews say this, nobody can be sure. That's actually what they call a self-defeating proposition, isn't it? Because if nobody can be sure, you can't be sure, nobody can be sure. But this is the truth that she's meeting. And then it's the, you know, a part of that is the all roads lead to God, isn't it? To which I think the right answer is all roads do lead to God, but the really important thing is what happens when you get there? Eventually you will get there by whatever road, but that's not a saving road. And so then she tries her next defense, which is the one day it will all sort itself out defense when the Messiah comes, which is, she's not looking for the Messiah. What she's really saying is this, you know, let me think about that tomorrow. And what she's saying to herself is, because this fellow will be gone tomorrow. Have you met people like that? They just want to stop the conversation. And what they want to deny is how close the conversation is getting to their real need. And what Jesus says to her is, look, ma'am, tomorrow has come today. When Messiah comes, you know, it all sorts itself out in the future, then we'll know, I who speak to you am He. Actually, what Jesus says is, I am. I am. And you see what He's now done. He's brought her to a point of decision. The decision now is inescapable for this woman. Will she go with this man or will she not go with this man? And then something kind of disastrous happens in the narrative, doesn't it? The disciples just, you know, you've experienced this kind of thing. Just when, you know, just like maybe you're watching a television program or doing something, just when you've come to the big moment, somebody appears. Now, could these disciples have stayed away? And they come and they say nothing. You know, what are they thinking? And they go, well, what's Jesus up to? They don't, they say absolutely nothing. And the woman disappears back into the village. And the villagers want to hear about Jesus. And there's a kind of minor revival in this village. But you know, there are two questions that are left hanging here in this story. The first question is this. Did this woman ever actually become a believer? It tells us that the people in the village believe, but it doesn't actually tell us that the woman herself came to trust in Christ. So, did this woman actually become a believer? Well, John doesn't say. He may not say because what he's, you see, what he's been doing here, he's been drawing me into the story. The Word has been searching me. I mean, whether this woman became a believer or not is something in the past that I can't affect. The, the real issue is if I become a believer, 
In this story, have I discovered, have I discovered the Word of God as a, like a surgeon's scalpel coming into my life, showing me my restlessness, showing me Jesus as my only possible Savior? But I think He does give us a little clue. If you were a movie maker, how would you end, how would this scene end if you were a movie maker? I think I know. It would end by the woman disappearing, the disciples hanging around Jesus, and then the camera would move round. And John fascinatingly seems to emphasize this to the fact that she'd left her water pot behind. Isn't that something? I mean, mean, why bother saying that? Because it's, uh, it's, like, it's like John saying, do you see the symbolism here? This water pot told Jesus everything about this woman's life, and now she's gone to drink from another well. And there's another question that this passage doesn't answer, but actually John answers it later on in the gospel. It's the woman's question, how can you give me this water? How can you give me this water. And John actually, I think, answers that question. It's embedded in the crucifixion narrative because that is the only other place in this gospel where we are told in one and the same event that it was the noon hour and Jesus said, I am thirsty. That's how the passion narrative is told in John's gospel in chapter 19. It is the noon hour that Jesus is condemned for what He Himself has not done, and it is in the events that follow that Jesus cries out on the cross, I am thirsty. So, how can He give us living water? How could He give her living water? Because on the cross, from the noon hour, to the mid-afternoon. He suffered and died for our sins. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And John tells us it was, as he cried, I thirst and died, that the soldier put the spear into his side and blood and a river of water flowed out the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Spirit to bring all the blessings of the gospel. Dear friends, John didn't tell us this story in order that we would discuss the woman at the well. He told us this story to make sure that we had found in Jesus the rivers of living water that we really need. Have you found them? Have you come to Jesus and drunk deeply? Are you drinking deeply? He is sufficient for all of our needs. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the narrative of John chapter 4 